I'm here with Griffin Olenek and Lucy Grindon to talk about the 20th century sculptor Alberto Giacometti, whose work is on exhibit at the Guggenheim Museum in New York City through September 12th. Griffin is an assistant editor at Commonweal Magazine and our Garvey Writing Fellow. He's written about the exhibit for the Commonweal website. Lucy's our summer intern, and she's also seen the show, as have I. So we thought this would be a good conversation among the three of us uh, to share with our listeners. And well, we've talked about Giacometti around the lunch table a few times already. We have. It's been a pretty interesting conversation, and I think uh, a number of our other colleagues have also been to see the show. Uh, so we thought this would be a great time to talk about it a little bit more. Now, Griffin, since you've already written on Giacometti, I'm wondering if first you could give a kind of a quick primer on him, uh, some biographical details. Sure. And some general comments about the kind of work he did. Sure. I'd be very happy to. So Giacometti was, as you said, he was Swiss born. He was born in a city called Borgo Nuovo, which is in Switzerland. He grew up speaking Italian. His father was a painter. He took up painting from an early age during his teenage years. And so to become a more famous painter, to become more well-known, he decided to move to Paris. It's interesting because we know him mostly for his sculptures, but he really, he set out to become a painter. But when he got to Paris, he became acquainted with some of the avant-garde sculpture movements there, pioneered by people like Constantine Brancusi, Pablo Picasso, and he began sculpting. And so generally, he's best known for three different kinds of works. He's got these early surrealist sculptures that he did in the 20s, He's also got the very famous skinny sculptures, and he's also got uh, busts of people's faces. So those are the three main things. He also continued painting, and I thought that was one of the most interesting things about the show at the Guggenheim, is they really got a huge quantity of paintings, uh, which is not typical for retrospectives on Giacometti. And it's interesting, I was listening to the audio guide which is laid over with many of Giacometti's different writings and quotations. And he says, painting for him came naturally. It was easy for him. And it was really sculpture where he had to strive. That's where he found the most artistic creativity. He said, I was really bad at sculpting. And so that's why he, <laughs> he said to challenge myself, that's why I'm going to do more sculpting. So I thought that was really interesting. I also wanted to just say, and this, is, this I found interesting too, that his sculptures have become some of the most expensive ever sold. When I was trying to think about writing a piece on skyscrapers, I was looking at some of the advertisements for apartments in these skyscrapers, which cost, you know, in the tens of millions of dollars. And they show you pictures of it, and they have Giacometti sculptures in these billionaire apartments on 57th Street. Inside what, the ads or the, sort of the staging? For Inside the staging, the... they have little sculptures of Giacometti's wiry figures. And could I ask what you might think he would think of that were he around to see this? This is really interesting. So the critic John Berger said that Giacometti wore his symbolic poverty more naturally than most monks. That is, Giacometti, he lived at least uh, when he left home, he was very poor. But towards the end of his career, he'd become wildly successful. So he had already had a show at the Guggenheim before his death. But the same studio that he rented as a 20-year-old in Paris, uh, this tiny, filthy studio, which has just been restored by the Fondation Giacometti in Paris, he stayed there for his entire life. So even after he, he achieved uh, you know, international acclaim, financial success, he still had the same routine. It's really interesting if you read the New York Times review of the show, Jason Farrago kind of points this out and, and says, remember how dirty Giacometti's <laughs> studio was. <laughs> yeah, remember how filthy it was when you look at the sculptures. So I think he, if he saw that these were in you know, billionaire apartments in Manhattan, he might say, well, in a weird way, that's kind of appropriate. Huh. You know, he would say, 
you know, it's, it's up to that billionaire to kind of ask themselves, are they really living a life that matters? What are they reducing other people to? Sure. Um, with all of their money. So I, I think it's interesting. Sure. That is a really interesting way to think about it. And in your review, Griffin, you talk about a number of pieces in the exhibit. And I guess just having given us that general overview to get us started, maybe you could talk specifically uh, about a couple of those works uh, that you had mentioned. I think uh, you would uh, spend particular time on Suspended Ball and the Cube. So maybe you could tell the listeners something about those. Those were the two that struck me the most. Again, they come from that first surrealist period. So we're talking uh, the end of the 1920s, the beginning of the 1930s. The whole idea with surrealism or the, the surrealism that Giacometti wanted to practice was this idea that one has to go deep within the soul, deep within the psyche, and kind of find symbolic shapes or objects that represent almost uncommunicable or incommunicable concepts. So, you know, if I'm feeling ornery one day, you know, I look inside myself and I find, I don't know, a spiked ball or something. So that, that's kind of the idea. And I thought that suspended ball was so interesting because it gets at one of Giacometti's primary preoccupations throughout his life, which was his solitude. He had this famous inability to make contact with other people. And that came out, uh, especially in a, a variety of sexual neuroses. Uh, so he was famously involved with prostitutes throughout his entire life, though he was married. So Suspended Ball is this really interesting attempt to represent what he thinks of as his existential solitary condition. So it consists of just two shapes. There's the suspended ball of the title, and then there's a curved, almost banana-shaped crescent on the bottom. And they're in a metal cage, which doesn't have bars, it doesn't have a fence around it, but it's just, think of it as almost a, a three-dimensional cubed plane where you just see the outlines. Uh, sort of a wire box. Yeah, sort of like, exactly, sort of like a wired box. And it becomes a kind of stage for his sculptures throughout his life. But so the ball hangs down just over the crescent and is almost touching it. And so it looks, I mean, it looks really obviously sexual. I think in the article I call it, you know, the comically sexualized yeah. mm -hmm. suspended ball. Because it's really funny to see. I don't know why it makes me laugh, but there, you know, it's, there's nothing else. It's this dangling ball. And if you look closely at it, it's very interesting. There's a gap of about... I don't know, what would you say? A, couple uh, a millimeter? I, it, it, you do have to look very closely. Yeah, you really have to look closely, but it actually hangs with great precision, the ball that is, above the crescent. So it's like at the very center of this piece, which is so funny, which obviously reminds us of sex, it's very poignant because he's got this little separation that he can't quite overcome. And I found that really moving. So he can kind of... Sh the artwork in that sense, to me, it does something interesting. It shifts from a kind of comedy to a kind of poignancy. And I think that's something too, Griffin, now that you mention it, just observing some of the other exhibit goers there sort of uh, standing before this piece, they felt something humorous about it. And you could sort of see it in the reactions in their faces. But then there was a slight change of expression when I think they began to get to sort of the essence of the piece that yeah. you're describing there. And that itself was sort of interesting to see. Yeah, it's actually kind of sad. That's the thing with Giacometti is he's almost like a tragic figure. Like, that's what's so interesting about the exhibit. It, you really are able to kind of come into contact with this personality, with this, it's almost like a person's soul is on display. But that was the idea of surrealism, to make the soul available, to make it almost three-dimensional in sculpture. Mm. So you say, well, how am I going to sculpt a soul? Mm. You can't just draw a you know, picture and have, <laughs> or have like a, a human representation. You've got to have something more, more strange and more, uh, I don't know, more challenging. Sure. Yeah. 
Sure. How about the cube then itself, the, right. the, the other piece? So the cube, I guess if the suspended ball begins with comedy, the, the cube very, you know, very differently, uh, let's call it contrastingly, begins with almost impenetrable sadness. Like it's, let me just describe it. It's this, it's not actually a cube. <laughs> it's more like a polyhedron. So it's got multiple faces and multiple angles. Uh, it's, it almost looks like a big crystal, like a big, um, Almost like a big head. He said, well, maybe this is just a a, a representation of a giant's head. And it just kind of sits on the floor. And the shape itself is actually drawn from a famous engraving called Melancholy by Albrecht Dürer, the famous German engraver during the Renaissance. And it's this famous symbol of sadness. And you can see in the Dürer print, you have the shape and then you've got this, you know, winged woman who kind of sits with her chin on her hand looking sad. And this is Giacometti's forlornness, his sadness, his uh, the way that his head is just a kind of massive block. He made it just after his father's death, so it's, it's very possibly a response to his father's death. And if you look at it closely, you can see that it's not just that it's sad, but it's also kind of violent. It's got uh, scratches all along the sides, and it's also got this very cryptic face carved into it. So again, yeah, I kind of, I get the same sort of sense from this, is that this is Giacometti representing himself at a very weak point, hmm. a very vulnerable point. Sure. Yeah, so it's, I found it quite moving. You know, I want to uh, shift gears a second here because there's a piece that I was particularly interested in and moved by when I saw it. And I think I'll just sort of frame my discussion of it just by reciting a line from Giacometti himself when he was describing some of his work and particularly about about when he sort of uh, goes onto a street and he sees what's around him. And he, he said this, in the street, people astound and interest me more than any sculpture or painting. Every second, the people stream together and go apart. Then they approach each other to get closer to one another. They unceasingly form and reform living compositions in unbelievable complexity. So I, I had this in mind as I made my way through the exhibit. And then suddenly I came upon a piece that I was unfamiliar with called City Square, which essentially I think, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's it's five figures. They're in that familiar kind of elongated structure, but they're, they're shorter than the most famous ones. They're maybe seven or 10 inches tall. And they're kind of arranged around a city square and they appear to be moving toward one another and simultaneously away from one another. And it's really quite a powerful piece. And the way it's set in the exhibit, you as a, as a museum goer can kind of observe it from multiple angles by stepping around it and looking at it from different directions. And you really get a sense of people in motion on a square or in a city street. And I found it quite powerful. And uh, this also gets to something I raised a second ago about sort of being in a museum with other people who are observing the same work you are. A woman next to me was staring at it and suddenly she appeared to start crying somewhat. She just seems uh, very moved by what she was seeing in City Square. And I just, uh, that was the piece that uh, really did I don't know. That really moved me when I was there. I'm just wondering what either of you two thought about that. Lucy, maybe did you have something? Something I found very interesting about City Square is that at first glance, it looks like an intersection because it looks like all of the figures are approaching the center, but none of them are actually walking along the same line. 
as people do uh, in a city square in New York. They walk perpendicular mm-hmm. to each other. Mm-hmm. And these people were all coming at the center from different angles. So you could tell that they weren't looking at each other and they weren't really going to pass each other, you know, even if they did sort of keep walking. And that made me sort of profoundly sad. <laughs> I think when we think of a city square, we want to think of community and connection between strangers, mm-hmm. but there really wasn't any connection between huh. the figures in this piece, it's huh. to me. It's huh. almost like an Antonio new film where he just shoots these open piazzas and you just see people coming in and out of the camera. It's just there. And they're, they're like ships passing in the night. They miss each other. Yeah. I wonder if we can talk, though, a little bit, too, and, and Griffin, you raised this at the outset, Giacometti's sort of uh, relationship to New York City, because he's closely associated not only with the Guggenheim, but at the beginning of, of this exhibit, uh, there's reference made to the fact that he was commissioned for a trio of large pieces at the Chase Manhattan Plaza in New York's financial district. And how did that work out? Do you recall? Hmm. Well, he was interested in the commission. I think he made several site visits, and it's pretty interesting because you can see his perspectival drawings in the exhibit uh, where he kind of sketches out the figures he wants placed. I think there was going to be an enlarged version of man walking, so a figure in motion, a sculpture of a woman standing, and then just a a big bust of his head. So you almost have these different phases of his career Mm -hmm. uh, that would have been placed in the plaza. But I don't remember exactly why he ends up getting turned off by the project. I think it was a problem with scale. He thought that the buildings there would have dwarfed the works themselves. And so at the end, and this was getting on towards the end of his life in the 60s, but he in the end decided not to do it. But we have, you know, we have his sketches, we have his his plan to do it. But this is so typically Giacometti. Like he he begins something and he doesn't finish it, Mm -hmm. almost like Leonardo da Vinci. Like he's much more about the quest of art itself than he is about the finished product. Right. And interesting, too, that it was for a bank. (laughs) <laughs> Highly interesting, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and then, of course, there is, I think, sort of a floor-to-ceiling photo representation of the way the plaza looked at that period when it was supposed to, the pieces were supposed to have appeared. And I do think scale would have been a significant issue. Yeah. Uh, but then again, we see this often in New York City, where we're sort of, uh, we unexpectedly maybe come up upon a piece of art in a public space and we have questions of whether or not it really belongs. Yeah. Who's it for? Correct. Is it for us? I found myself, when I came to the Guggenheim exhibit, and that's sort of the first main gallery that you see that introduces you to the show. And I was like, well, it would be pretty cool if I could go down and see this. But then I thought, I don't want to go to the financial district. You know, that's not where this belongs. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think Giacometti must have had that intuition too, where success was never a huge thing for him. And he famously didn't kind of compare himself to the the standards of success of the art world. He was much more interested in satisfying his own internal standards, which were quite high. Basically, he had this idea that he wanted to find the truth. And he never, mm-hmm. he never really defines this, but he says, I'm really interested in my quest for truth, uh, this idea to bite into reality, to nourish himself. It was much more a personal project than it ever was a kind of public and certainly not commercial enterprise that he was running. Sure. I definitely felt the same way because especially with his busts of men, he seemed to do the same thing over and mm-hmm. over and over again. It felt like I was seeing dozens of busts. Uh, none of them were identical, but they were all very similar to each other. Yeah. You know, clearly no one is going to buy several dozen almost identical busts. No, definitely not. <laughs> Except now they are. <laughs> <laughs> well, now if you get one, you know, you can retire early. Right. <laughs> 
Lucy, you've mentioned a couple pieces, but I know that there were a number that uh, you wanted to try to bring up as well. So maybe you could uh, touch on some of those. I wanted to talk a little bit more about City Square and about the idea of motion in Giacometti's work in general. The pieces that I found the most thought-provoking, because Giacometti spent so much time making these walking figures, the pieces I found the most thought-provoking because of that were his sculptures of women in particular. Not necessarily the busts of women, but the very skinny women who are molded to look like the skinny men in his walking sculptures. I noticed that there weren't any sculptures of women that were moving in the way that the male sculptures were moving. I went to see the exhibit with my mom, and we both noticed that no matter how big or how tiny the sculptures were, you could always tell whether they were men or women. Even when we saw this little sculpture that was smaller than a toothpick, and you could tell it was a woman because you had seen so many of the sculptures of women, so you women, so you recognize that shape. But in City Square, for example, there are four male figures and there's one female figure. Mm-hmm. And all four of the male figures are walking very briskly. Mm-hmm. They have these big, long strides, and the woman is just standing still. And then there are other figures of women, some of which are in motion, but none of them quite in the mm-hmm. way that the men are in motion. Like in Walking Woman 1, which I think is one of his earlier works, Mm -hmm. there's a woman who sort of has one of her legs forward, like in an old Egyptian sculpture, Mm -hmm. but she doesn't have a head. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. she doesn't really have agency Mm -hmm. in the way that the walking men do. Mm -hmm. And there's a woman with a chariot, and she's obviously in motion, but her body is completely still, and it's like she needs a vehicle Mm -hmm. or a device in order for her to move. And then the only sculpture I saw in the entire exhibit, and I may not have seen every single piece, but the only sculpture I saw where a woman was actually walking and had her whole body intact Mm -hmm. was figure between two houses. But in that sculpture, there's this very small woman figure who's walking, and she's literally walking between two small boxes. And the space she's walking inside of, uh, in between those two boxes, is itself a glass box. Mm -hmm. So she's not outside. She's Mm -hmm. not in the open. And Mm -hmm. all of the other walking sculptures are just in in open air, which which I thought was really cool. Yeah, Yeah, and it, it sort of made me think, oh, here's this woman who's walking from... A house to a house and she's inside and she's sort of she's sort of sheltered and I didn't know if Giacometti was trying to make a point about how women in our society are not as free or active as men or if he himself didn't see women that way mm-hmm. if he didn't see women as necessarily as dynamic or free mm-hmm. as men uh, but that was something that bothered me mm-hmm. yeah not to make an awkward segue or transition, but certainly there are some pieces that are also rather unsettling. In fact, one of these is a woman with her throat cut. And I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about that, uh, because uh, these are pieces that have gotten some attention in a different way. Mm-hmm. For me, it was the most shocking and I think upsetting sculpture in the entire exhibit. I'll just describe it briefly. It looks almost like a, a metallic bug, or if you think of like a bear trap. You know, it's spiky, it's got curvy lines, and it's lying directly on the floor. Lucy was mentioning that many of the sculptures have pedestals, some of them have cages. This one is just on the ground, and it's kind of meant to assault the museum goer. Giacometti intended to place it in a museum. And so you come upon it and you're like, what is this thing? It looks like almost a sharp insect or something. But you look at it closely and you actually see that it is a female figure. And her back is kind of arched, her knees are bent, and then you can see that it's her spinal cord 
sort of tapers up to where her head would be, and then there's just a huge gash where her throat would be cut. So it's, it, I mean, that's the title of the piece, but it's, it, it shocks you with, with it hits you with such force. And then you see that her arms are actually bleeding these big spikes of, of metallic blood. And it's something that it, it kind of explains itself to you as you look, the more you look at it, the more you begin to understand what it actually is. And, and when you realize what it is, you just, I looked at all the other people around the museum, it's just kind of like shock or not shock, but like almost like nausea like a, a gross feeling in the stomach. And supposedly Giacometti had had, you know, fantasies of murder, fantasies of rape, and he wasn't really afraid to look at these very dark parts of himself. Whereas other people didn't seem eager to linger on this, at least no. the, the, the day that I was there. Uh, folks seemed to take a look and, as you say, sort of react almost sort of visibly in an unsettled way and yeah. move on. Yeah, my parents saw they came to see the show, and I didn't see it with them, but that was the first thing they mentioned. They they loved the show, but they said, but that one piece, mm. Women with Their Throat Cut, what was that all about? Yeah. It's still, it's really upsetting to think about. It is. It is. And even sort of a, when you, if you see pictures of it online or in, or in a book on the exhibit, it even comes through then, uh, yeah. not even seeing it live necessarily. Now, there was another piece there, too. Well, I guess a, a pair of pieces loosely referred to as disagreeable objects. Right. God, I hated those. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's interesting. One of them has the subtitle disagreeable object for to be thrown out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's like he's he wants you to hate them. <laughs> I remember we were having a lunch conversation about disagreeable object a couple of weeks ago. And this was before I had seen the exhibit. And I thought that's such a silly thing to name a piece of art. And there's no way I'm going to have such a such a visceral reaction when I actually see it. But I saw it and I thought... That's horrible. <laughs> well, maybe maybe now we can sort of explain to listeners just why it's horrible, because what does it look like? Lucy, do you want to take this one? <laughs> it's long. It's made of wood. There are actually a couple of these, but it's sort of, again, it's almost banana shaped, but very large, maybe two and a half feet long. Yeah. And at one end, it has this very round knob, and then it has this long banana thing sort of a long cylinder that tapers and curves at the end. And at the end, it has little spikes or bumps. Almost the way you would see there, you know, if you think of nails being put into the end of a baseball bat or something yeah, like that, that there's yeah. a quality yeah. like that. But it's way more disgusting. It's far more disgusting. It's truly revolting. It definitely looks like a weapon and maybe some kind of sexual weapon. It definitely is highly sexualized. Yeah. Uh, and it's also... Um, how do I say this? Scatological. Yes. Uh, <laughs> let's say. Yeah. Um, it looks like, uh, you know, uh, something that one would defecate or something that I, I called in my my piece when I read about it, like the detritus of his soul. Mm -hmm. uh, the most gross thing you could possibly imagine made all the more disturbing and then made in a variety of media. So there's a bronze edition of it. There's a plaster one. There's a wooden one. And it just, it's like, these fine materials shouldn't be used for such a disgusting thing. There's something very much of the shadow there, too, or it's something very primal, too, that, that, that comes through when you're looking at it. And it is, I mean, it does, in a much different way than looking at women with their throat cut, there is a more revulsion, I think, is the immediate response yeah. to it. Revulsion, yeah. yeah. But it's interesting that he solicits these responses mm -hmm. from objects that we know they're just sculptures, like they're not going to hurt us. And yet, like, they're... 
they're just so creepy. Like they're <laughs> like they're just gross. Yeah, this is something that probably you must see to appreciate if that's the yeah. word. Yeah. Griffin, in your essay, you say this about the final part of Giacometti's life in making art, and I'm going to read a passage. The last 15 years of Giacometti's life were driven by a single, all-consuming passion. Like Christian philosophers in the Middle Ages, he intuited that the very source, the animating principle of a person's entire being, could be detected in the spark that flashes forth from their eyes. Right up until his death, Giacometti worked for hours each day in his cramped studio, dedicating himself to discovering the truth of the people seated before him. Using just a few live models, Giacometti produced an almost never-ending series of busts and portraits, like a curve approaching infinity that came nearer and nearer to approximating the fathomless mystery of their faces. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that fathomless mystery of their faces. It's such a provocative and evocative line, because that's something that struck me pretty powerfully as well. As Lucy was saying, there's so many different busts and portraits, so many faces. And Giacometti just went on for the last 10 or 15 years of his life, just repeating in painting and in sculpture, the facial composition of the, the figures that he had seated before him. He was trying to discover something within them, a kind of mystery that exists. And he's really drawn to it. He's drawn to being in the presence of other people. And he wants to get it right. He would say, you know, I'm striving to get a perfect, as, as clear as I can, or as close as I can to reality, to what they're actually like. What for me is so interesting, and I talk about the kind of medieval roots of this, is how similar it is to Dante, how Giacometti views the human face in much the same way that Dante does. And I was reminded of a book that I, I reviewed for Commonweal a couple of years ago, called Reading Dante's Comedy as Theology by a theologian slash literary critic slash scholar at, at Notre Dame called Vittorio Montemaggi. And Vittorio argues that for Dante, the way to come into contact with God is by staring deeply into another person's eyes. And he says that I would ask my students to do this in class. I would say, let's see how we're starting to look at each other here at the podcasting studio. We're getting a little freaked out. Yeah, but, yeah. Sit back a little, Griffin. Yeah. No, but because, because you never do it. It's something that we as human beings, we find very difficult to do to actually sit and gaze into the face of another human being because it's so full of wonder. It's so full of mystery. And Giacometti was drawn to this idea. And it's interesting that the, it was an idea that other thinkers at the same time, around about the same time, are kind of thinking about. So there's Emmanuel Levinas, who has this famous ontology of the face, where the face represents, you know, the being of that person. And it actually becomes um, the basis of his ethics. So the way that I can care for another person, the way that I can come to love another person is by staring deeply into their eyes, seeing them. Not as other, but almost without a mask. And same thing for uh, the, you know, the Jewish theologian Martin Buber, who has the famous concept of the I-thou relationship. Mm -hmm. That is all about relationship. And I think for Giacometti, somebody who was so lonely for his entire life, so frustrated sexually, though he was married, so apart from everything, including the result that he wanted to achieve in his art, this is the one moment where he kind of breaks through. And he's able to say, oh, I can sit with a person for 15 minutes and just look at them. And that's really beautiful. And so he's almost, when you look at his sculptures and you look at his paintings, it's almost like he's caressing 
the face that's in front of him to the clay. If he can't touch them physically, you know, because it would be pretty weird <laughs> to go and to rub somebody's face, but that's almost like what he's doing. And I saw a kind of, like, if there's any example of divinity in Giacometti's work, this is where it really shines through. This is kind of how God, I would imagine, looks at us. So you could imagine God looking at Adam. Um, and so, but the medieval philosophers, and you know, especially the Christian ones, they kind of intuited this. That's what all the medieval love poems are about, looking into the lover's eyes, considering their mouth. It's all about the face. Mm. So something that I really appreciated about the faces as opposed to the sculpture was that it really genuinely felt to me like Giacometti was trying to get the essence of the people he was looking at regardless of their gender. And mm. the sculptures seemed so gendered to me. Like mm. I said, I could always tell if it was a woman or a man. And sometimes especially the breasts and the hips on the figures were so much more pronounced than, mm. than they are in real life. So looking at these sculptures and seeing how he repeatedly tried to get at the essence of a person, sometimes painting their face totally black, and it looked like he had just applied so much paint that it was almost, the paintings were almost three-dimensional. I could see that when he was painting individuals, it didn't matter to him whether mm. the person was a woman or a man, and it made me feel more seen in a, in a way. Mm. Like, if he had painted me, he wouldn't have just seen like a young woman necessarily he would have seen like mm. a like a young woman in america who's a millennial he would mm -hmm. have seen me for the essence of my being. a person yeah yeah Griffin, you, you talk about, uh, you mentioned the critic John Berger in your piece as well, who remarked that uh, Giacometti, Berger thought that had Giacometti lived in an earlier era, he would have been a religious artist. What do we think of this? What is it in his work? I mean, you've touched on some of it, but what is it in his work over three distinct periods of surrealism, kinetic sculpture, and existentialism, and then this serene consideration of the human face that you talk about? What would lead Berger to suggest such a thing? And, and do we agree? I don't know. I'll just I'll speak for Berger himself. And Berger wrote this very short essay after Giacometti's death where he says he worked fully with the mental conceptions and the existential concerns that were central to his age. So Giacometti's born in the 20th century, a time where you've got the crumbling of religious certainties, two world wars, massive rise of consumerism. And Giacometti confronts these things. He doesn't run away from them. So I think that's kind of what Berger meant is that He's interested in the deepest questions that his age is posing. And before that would have been religious questions. In the 20th century, it's not that he has to go and invent questions about God. It's that he sees all around him religion fading, and he wants to take that seriously. But I would even go one step further than Berger and say, Giacometti, in a way, is a religious artist. Uh, and you think of the origin of the word religion, which comes from religio, right? Ligare, which means to bind in Latin. So religion is something that binds you to divinity. It's a set of practices. And that's what Giacometti's art was. It was just a set of daily practices. He woke up every day in his studio. He began working. He would sit for hours with people. He would take a walk. And then he would get back to it, even failing a lot. And so I found it very inspiring that he's almost like, you know, I call him in the piece, he's almost like a monk or almost like the psalmist. He's somebody who he's used to trying again and again and again through this kind of daily repetition. And that's what we do in prayer. We always pray very badly. I think we never really get it right. And I think Giacometti, he's like, when I make a sculpture, I never really get it right. It's almost a prayer. Berger famously called Giacometti's sculptures almost like physical prayers. I thought that was, you know, a really cool way of thinking about it. But 
whether or not he's religious, I don't really know. What does it mean to be religious today? <laughs> it's a bigger question. A question for another episode, yeah. I think. Okay, thanks, uh, Lucy Grindon, our Commonweal intern, and Griffin Olenek, who is our Garvey Writing Fellow and Assistant Editor at Commonweal. Uh, you can read more about Giacometti's work in Griffin's essay, Modeling Mystery, on the Commonweal website. The Giacometti exhibit runs through September 12th at New York City's Guggenheim Museum.